0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with Sup China. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access, or check out subchina.com for all the original reported stories, op-eds, great regular columns, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, I have an informal checklist of characteristics I keep in mind when I take the measure of any individual whose livelihood is all about analysis or commentary on China. I I admit it's a tall order, but ideally that individual should have spent a good chunk of time living in China such that they have a real sense of the stakes, some actual skin in the game, and a well-developed cognitive empathy muscle. Uh, They should... Take a holistic approach, one that's inter- or multidisciplinary, grounded in good, solid social science methodology, but also attuned to, you know, the soft stuff, the the qualitative, the less tangible things, uh, people who have enough interaction with Chinese people in different walks of life to really get their their habits of mind and their reactions, their body language. They, they should be you know steeped in history, and not just China's history. That alone is not of all that much value without a comparative framework. Uh, they should be able to zoom in on the trees without losing a sense of the forest. So my guest today is someone who demonstrably ticks all of these boxes and then some. He is a voice on China I hope we hear a lot more from in years to come because he brings to the conversation on China and especially to the conversation on technology in China, which we'll focus on today, uh, perspectives that are informed by by philosophy, by the humanities, by close readings of of, of Chinese sources, and by a broad and and well-synthesized knowledge of, of the wider world, which he puts into very nice prose. Dan Wong is a Shanghai-based researcher at Gavacol Dragonomics and a regular contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. For the last four years, he's written a New Year's letter on his blog, The Secure Transport of Light, which reflects deeply on a wide range of topics. This year's letter, which we'll link to in the show notes, was a real tour de force and was widely read in China-interested circles. The second I finished it, I dropped Dan a note to arrange for a podcast interview, and now that he's bought himself a good microphone, we are at last ready to do this. So, Dan Wong, welcome to Seneca, and great to finally have you on the show. Well, thank you very
0: much, Kaiser. This is uh, probably the most kind introduction I've ever received.
1: (laughs) I do my best. Uh, Anyway, Dan, your Bloomberg columns uh, are really great. The work you do at Dragonomics is definitely top-notch, but it's really your more personal public stuff, your blog, especially in uh, the annual letters, that really get me thinking and not infrequently end up having a real deep impact on my own understanding of China. Uh, so this year's letter opens with a really interesting meditation about party propaganda, about the writings of the party. And it places these in the context of of inspiration, which is not the first thing you will agree that comes to mind for most Westerners when they think about you know the slogans and the campaign messaging that comes out of Beijing. For the most part, it lands on their ears as as stilted, as you know, embarrassingly facile, or, or sometimes as just blatantly hypocritical. Uh, and, and the language of official speeches and pronouncements is, as you note in your letter, often described as turgid. I, I'm definitely uh, one of the people who's used that word as cliche as it is. But you connect in your letter things as disparate as space exploration, you know, our proverbial moonshots, our Mars ambitions to to this idea that that propaganda is ultimately all about inspiration uh tell me about the the massive uh and i would say pretty goddamn masochistic reading project that you undertook in 2020 and how you arrived at the end of that process at this conclusion about propaganda and inspiration
0: Right. Well, uh, I'll start with how I felt, Kaiser. And uh, that is uh, by the end of the year, I was uh, completely dazed by this reading project. Now, what I spent <laughs> uh, over a year was to read a magazine called uh, Qiushi, which is uh, translated as Seeking Truth. And that is the main party's uh, theory propaganda journal. Uh, so th- this is the flagship theory journal of the party that basically features something I think of as a mix of the New Yorker uh, magazine as well as the Federal Register publication of regulations uh, in the U.S. Each (laughs) uh, publication starts with a speech from President Xi Jinping, uh, the General Secretary of the Communist Party, uh, and then basically commentary from the rest of the uh, bureaucracy or the rest of the party state on uh, what he means. And so I spent the year reading every issue. This uh, uh, magazine comes out twice a month, and I thought quite a bit about the state of uh, China's
1: propaganda efforts. Uh, It sure sounds like it. Oh, man. You drew the conclusion, though, at the end of this, that uh, a commitment to centralized campaigns of inspiration, you know what many people would just dismiss as as mere party speak, as sloganeering, uh, represented by the tendency to fix clear goals, is the booster stage, you called it, required to leave the gravitational pull of decadence and complacency. So you quote Jacques Barzun via Ross Douthat saying that a decadent society is one that is peculiarly restless for it sees no clear lines of advance. Are Western nations, the United States, is is the U.S. by your lights decadent and complacent?
0: Well, certainly Ross Douthat makes that case uh, in a book-length treatment uh, called uh, The Decadent uh, Society. Now, um, Douthat would point to decadence, you know, what exactly does this mean? His definition is roughly something like, you know, uh, a cultural economic stagnation at a very high level of economic output. And he makes a pretty compelling case, although in a little bit of this, you know, uh, social conservative way that, you know, fertility has declined in the West, um, that there is uh, basically not a great deal of new movie series that are outside of these uh, big tentpole franchises that for the most part, the U.S. has become a decadent society. And I was thinking quite a bit about uh, Douthat's book uh, as I read a lot of uh, party speak uh, this year. And I thought that, you know, the uh, 2021 is the centenary of the Communist Party's founding uh, that took place in 1921 in uh, Shanghai. And the big slogan uh, of the year that the uh, Communist Party has unveiled for basically the last uh, three years uh, has been uh, translated you know uh, don't forget where we came from you have to remember the mission and then there's often a third little bit tacked on uh, the one that I like uh, especially is uh, the struggle is forever or the struggle never ends and so there is uh, basically a little bit of a sense that, you know, from the Communist Party, now this has uh, been a hundred years since the founding. Uh, in about uh, three more decades, there will be the centenary of the founding of the People's Republic that we can never forget that we started our roots from a combat party that was constantly at the mercy of, you know, the nationalist government uh, or the Japanese or, you know, other, uh, you know, the Soviet revisionists or the American imperialists. Uh, and so they really have to figure out that you know the roots of the party are one that had a great deal of struggle, uh, and then we should always make sure that we are progressing uh, very much. And this is sort of the attitude that I don't exactly see uh, in the U.S., that uh, everyone has become, you know, very well off. You know, there's a cultural splendor of uh, different things that one can enjoy. Um, you know, suburban life in, uh, for example, I would say uh, North Carolina ought to be pretty comfortable. You can go to the Costco, you can go to the park. <laughs> and for the most part, there has been, I would say, a bit of a slowdown uh, in a, a lot of uh, ideas of progress in the U.S. Now, I used to work in two of the most dynamic parts of the U.S., which I submit are New York City city, uh, as well as San Francisco. And uh, when I've come over to Beijing, uh, and I see basically a great deal more dynamism in so many ways than the Bay Area, this is how I kind of keep thinking that, you know, maybe there's a little bit more dynamism here uh, than even some of the most dynamic parts of the US.
1: Yeah, actually, you make a pretty startling claim about that. Uh, But you know, before we get to that, I, I you know, I was actually rereading your letter and, and kind of preparing for this conversation while also watching the Biden inaugural. And I got to say, I mean, there was some, you know, there was a quality of, of uh, campaign of inspiration going on in there and, you know, laying out some pretty clear goals there as well. So maybe all is not lost. But in that letter, you do make this claim that I said, you know, I think is, is maybe startling. You, you wrote, this year made me believe that China is the country with the most can-do spirit in the world. What were some of the key things that you saw that convinced you of this? Uh, well,
0: Kaiser, after Lunar New Year in 2020, I uh, was in Beijing from basically February 1st uh, and uh, until uh, this point. So I've been able to observe uh, China from the capital of uh, for the entirety of the uh, COVID uh, pandemic. And so early on, you know, I think I I learned uh, basically two lessons uh, this year. So um, the first is that China is a lot more brutal uh, than I expected. So the measures that uh, Beijing, which was not really the epicenter of the original uh, outbreak of the virus, took a lot of really severe measures to limit movement by forbidding folks to come into the city, by, you know, installing uh, security guards outside every apartment compound to make sure that people are not gathering uh, in uh, big spaces uh, in different apartments, to make sure that everybody had to wear masks in the streets and flash a contact tracing app uh, whenever they went to any commercial area. So, you know, Beijing, on the one hand, uh, looks you know much more uh, brutal uh, than I thought. What? <laughs> On the other hand, I also saw that it wasn't just the government that stepped up in a big way to confront this uh, big pandemic. Now, uh, it wasn't just the government; Uh, a lot of other segments of uh, the corporate world, especially, stepped up. Um, For example, a lot of the uh, tech companies uh, changed their user interfaces to make it easy to find fever clinics around the area or the nearby pharmacy. So, you know, the tech companies did quite a lot. The other big thing that I observed, I spend quite a lot of time uh, speaking to manufacturers in China. You know, they would tell me that they really ramped up production of a lot of different goods. They tried really hard in the early days of the lockdown by, let's say, February uh, 13th or 14th. This is, uh, the, these are the typical dates that manufacturers would offer me. They tried really hard to make sure that they had sanitized workplaces, that they had adequate work protection, worker protections, uh, and then, um, you know, uh, to produce as much as they can. And the effects of that have been pretty startling. So uh, in the yeah. first quarter, quarter of the year the state council announced that uh, china exported something like 40 billion masks at the end of the year uh the the throughout 2020 uh china exported something like 240 billion uh, masks uh, to the rest of the world Um, there was a great deal more uh, production and so china looks like a very dynamic society in which people stepped up to uh, you know confront this big problem now, what one Chinese manufacturer uh, told me was that when it uh, when he observed his counterparts in the U.S., he saw that too many companies would ask themselves, "Well, is making masks uh, part of our core competence?" Whereas the Chinese companies simply decided that making money is their core competence. Therefore, they should go make masks. And therefore, this is a, a quite a dynamic can-do
1: society that I've been able to observe. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't disagree. Uh, Lest anyone think that your views on China are uniformly sanguine, I think I I should, at this point, urge listeners who haven't done so already to read your whole 2020 letter really carefully, including the excellent Section 2, which is called Control. And that section takes a really unblinking look not only at the downside of the sloganeering, but also at the increasing repression within Chinese society, at the stepped-up censorship, at the really prickly defensiveness, which has manifested itself in some of this wolf warrior diplomacy BS, uh, the failure to create significant and 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 universally appealing cultural products it's something I've talked about an awful lot uh, the apparent you know willingness to just openly antagonize all these other states uh, if any of these topics you know were our topic of conversation we could go an hour on it uh, but I, I do hope to follow up and, and talk to you about many of these things but um today time's limited and I want to move now uh, to issues that are related to technology uh, i I want to get to technology though by way of another theme that is prevalent. In a lot of your recent writing, and, and that is the sheer importance of economic growth, which, as you say, it, I mean it's an unfashionable idea. I mean, I think you're right. I more and more I hear people talking about no growth, uh, and that usually is, is is grounded in, I guess, what you would say was a laudable commitment to environmentalism. But what is wrong with this idea? Well,
0: the first noteworthy thing is that um, China, for uh, the last few decades, one of the major incentives for um, the cadres in government uh, have been broadly to pursue two goals. The first is uh, social stability. So, you know, to make sure that there are not too many mass incidents or protests uh, for uh, whichever party secretary is managing the city or the county or the province. Um, and the other big thing that they are uh, that the organization department really ranks uh, cadres on is uh, economic growth. And this is uh, something that is just a highly blunt instrument to see how high you can jack up that number. Now, there's been a a lot of criticisms of that approach. And uh, under President Xi, uh, that approach has mostly been de-emphasized to focus on a great number of other targets, um, you know, whatever is the slogan of the moment set by the central government. But for at least a while, I think um, this uh, huge emphasis on ranking different administrators on how much they can deliver economic growth has been a pretty important part of China's success. Now, it uh, it led them to uh, spend huge efforts in attracting foreign investment, let's say. We know that uh, a lot of uh, different government officials went to go beg uh, Apple to situate, uh, you know, a lot of uh, factories in their provinces. Uh, Eventually, we know that Shenzhen won in 2008 for basically situating the site of the uh, production of the first iPhones. Um, But a lot of officials have tried really hard to attract foreign investment. They tried to build a lot of infrastructure. They tried, uh, you know, all different types of schemes, for example, to um, uh, create greater tourism resources. And it's obvious that we can see a lot of these downsides. So we know that, you know, they have possibly overbuilt a lot of infrastructure. We know now that the environment uh, can be a huge mess in different areas. And we can criticize, you know, quite a lot of these types uh, of the approach. But I think uh, early on, when the country has been trying to is trying to develop, when it is trying to instill business confidence, when it is trying to create infrastructure, when it is trying to, you know, uh, create a big Uh, base of spending by uh, trying to boost the economy as a whole. Um, You know, I think this has been a very powerful instrument that the uh, Chinese government has emphasized in a way that was a little bit unique from uh, quite a lot of the developing
1: world, which has not seen quite a lot of the success that China has. So there's another component to this, though, that you've talked about in some of your writing, and that's sort of of, the impact of growth on the mentality of people. Uh, You wrote When people have experienced a few years of high growth, they're conditioned to expect more of it. That expectation increases risk appetites for both companies and individuals. People have seen their lives getting better in a hundred different ways in the last four decades, and they can be optimistic that more things will improve. They'd be more comfortable starting new businesses or trying on new careers and these activities won't even feel like risky events because new opportunities have always been coming along. I, I link that same idea to technology, how Chinese people have seen four decades of their lives getting better in a hundred different ways, as you say, and consciously or not, they connect this to the technological improvements that they've 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 seen in their daily lives. The devices are probably like the most conspicuous representation of that of that improvement. I mean, I, I've talked about how this expectation of improvement comes with a different posture toward futurity, uh, toward tech's role in the future. Uh, it leads to less cynicism and to a kind of buoyancy. How pervasive is this in China? I mean, I spent a lot of my working life just in Haidian, surrounded by all these you know, tech, young people, these really tech-savvy young people. So this buoyancy and this optimism, you know, in the Chinese capital city, in its tech center, uh, of course, it's going to be there. But I, I don't really trust my own sense of how widespread it is. W- what do you think?
0: Well, uh, Kaiser, I spend quite a lot of time thinking about the idea of optimism, and one of my uh, my current line of thinking is that, you know, the opposite of optimism is not something like pessimism, but it is uh, something like, uh, as you note, uh, cynicism, in which basically you just don't believe that anything can be done, uh, and so you just don't do anything at all. Instead, uh, you should want something to be uh, very dynamic. And when I... Th- wrote uh, those lines, I had been uh, thinking about basically a report, uh, just a news report uh, out of Japan, in which the younger folks, uh, the, you know, the fresh college graduates uh, in Japan, were not super eager to seek uh, these uh, higher paying jobs that were a little bit risky. They were still very stuck on this mindset of, you know, let's just do the traditional thing, even when a higher pay or, uh, you know, more exciting projects come calling, I should just stick with what I'm currently doing. Hmm. And that is completely the opposite of young people in China and I would say that this is not simply about the uh, tech world centered in uh, Haidian uh, I would say that this is probably just a uh, general matter in which folks kept seeing that the environment around them uh, keeps getting better. For the most part, people are earning higher salaries uh, than a few years before, uh, and they can expect that, well, you know, why don't I give it a shot? Uh, You know, I feel like there will still be a lot of uh, high paying or, you know, well paying Opportunities waiting for me, even if this particular project doesn't work out. And I think this uh, again comes back to this uh, emphasis on economic growth. So, you know, if you do the math, if you have uh, 7% growth uh, over, let's say, you know, a decade, you know, compounded over a decade, roughly your economy is uh, twice as big uh, as, uh, you know, 10 years ago. And so when you are twice as big, pretty much everything around you uh, really seriously changes. And again, when I contrast this with the built environment in uh, let's say the Bay Area, which I'm most familiar with, which is uh, a place which is famously anti-housing, a place which has uh, spent about 20 years now building Van Ness Avenue to add a bus lane, uh, which is not a very impressive affair, in which uh, basically a lot of the things around you that can change are you know, slightly better cafes or more chic boutiques, this doesn't quite instill the idea of growth in which, you know, things are changing, things can be better, which is, I think, much more prevalent in uh, among young people
1: in China. Absolutely. (laughs) That really captures it well. Dan, I want to focus on something that you argued, not only in your annual letter, but I've also seen in other writings of yours. And that's this idea that in talking about technology innovation, uh, not just with China, but really more broadly, we're mistaken to focus as much as we tend to, um, and by we, I mean, you know, people in the media, just sort of the population generally. We're mistaken to focus as much as we do on digital technology. Uh, It reminds me of conversations that I've had with Evgeny Morozov, uh, who calls this kind of thinking internet centrism. Uh, What are the baneful effects of this emphasis on, on digital technology, on social media and that sort of thing, at the expense of thinking about industrial innovation, manufacturing innovation. Well, credit where credit's
0: due, Kaiser, I think a lot of my thinking was triggered by this very clever line that Peter Thiel offered uh, around a decade ago, which is that, you know, we wanted flying cars. Uh, Instead, we had uh, 140 characters uh, referring to Twitter. And so, you know, this uh, drove a lot of my thinking for uh, basically the last decade in which the Western world has prioritized especially the consumer internet uh, as the highest form of technology a proposition i've become uh, highly skeptical of in which right. i don't necessarily see that google or facebook or twitter are you know the the very apex of what uh, humanity can achieve That there is just the straightforward ladder and that facebook is at the very top even though it creates uh, you know a lot of value for shareholders In my view, these companies are not necessarily uh, creating a great deal of IP. Instead, they've gotten to where they are by being very good at exploiting network effects and being very good at business model uh, innovation. Now, you know, when I think about this um, obsession with um, the digital world, first of all, you know, I would note again that for a lot of the uh, US, the built environment around them has not changed a great deal. Cities certainly are quite a lot nicer than they were. Twenty years ago, but that's not necessarily through the construction of a lot of uh, you know new skyscrapers. It's mostly through this upgrade of the retail space. And so folks are, I think, somewhat limited in what they can imagine uh, can be uh, improved around them. And I think this uh, idea that the built environment cannot change, but digital technologies can always get better, pushes people in a bit of a dystopian direction. So, hmm. you know, when I think through a lot of the major science fiction movies uh, of the last uh, few uh, decades, I would cite, you know, it's something like The Matrix, uh, in which uh, the real world is, uh, as you see it, is, is a fake. You know, all these, um, you know, something like Gravity, in which nothing can go wrong if you go into space. Why don't you just hang out uh, on uh, a muddy island uh, instead? You know, the Terminator series, uh, in which, you know, the um, it's going to be a robot that's going to come over and kill us all and these have not been as inspirational to me as something like let's say in, uh Stanley Kubrick's 2001 in which humanity reaches uh you know I think it's uh Jupiter uh, eventually that they, that they go to and so you know science fiction has taken a highly dystopian turn i struggle to name many that have uh, optimistic themes around technology or around exploration and i uh, sort of want to link that to the idea that we can see progress only in these digital technologies uh, which are starting to become uh, indeed revolting to a lot of people uh, while the physical environment has not changed a great deal in the us
1: that's that's a really interesting idea i had never really thought to link uh, this kind of valorization of digital technology to this kind of dystopian tendency, which I I've I uh talked about many, many times as well. I I mean I, I contrast it with with the place that technology has in 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 Chinese culture, the way that Chinese people relate to technology. Um and I think the science fiction is 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 a good way of looking at it. I mean even if you look at um so there 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 are a couple of pieces of relatively dystopian science fiction that have gotten a lot of attention in the West out of China, like uh Folding Beijing, but there's a lot of Chinese sci-fi that is just sort of unembarrassedly optimistic, techno-optimistic. I, 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 was, I mean, I have a shorthand for this. I say that while the U.S. and the U.K. are in their Black Mirror phase, China is still in its Star Trek phase. Uh, I, I should definitely add. I am indebted to uh, a philosopher named. Uh, Anna Greenspan, who was on our show a long time ago, and wrote a book called Shanghai Future, which was really the first articulation that I had seen about this kind of divergence in, in attitudes uh, toward technology in the future. So, Dan, I think it's it's fascinating that you you link this to our you know ignoring real sort of manufacturing and and industrial innovation in favor of this other stuff, the 140 characters over the flying cars. Um, is dystopian fiction, as you suggest, really the inevitable product of stagnant growth also. I, I I wonder if it's both dystopian fiction and stagnant growth are maybe the the result of this loss of this other thing that we've talked about, of definite optimism.
0: That's right. And, uh, you know, I think this is, uh, to link this back to our earlier discussion of uh, reading quite a lot of party speak, this is a lot of what the party speak, as I conceive it, of uh, trying to avoid. Um, you know, one of the main things I think uh, that is different between China and the U.S. is that China has preserved a firm hold on the mechanisms for propaganda and instead, the uh, U.S. has sort of, um, you know, let it drift into the hands of uh, Hollywood or Twitter or a lot of these um, more random mechanisms. So, you know, one of the things I was uh, really struck by a-, a few years ago when um, China made uh, a breakthrough in some uh, quantum communication. Um, you know, I don't even re- really exactly remember what this was, but was it, it was something in, um, like in, uh, early 2017, um, in which yeah, no, they basically- sent
1: the quantum particle in, they linked a, a quantum particle with a satellite or, or something in, in orbit. Yeah, it remember, was, um, yeah, something space related. Uh, and I
0: just yeah, remember yeah. that the, um, 7 p.m., uh, uh news hour, uh, of, uh, just dedicated something like 10 minutes to explaining, uh, uh, the science behind that. Now, I'm not sure how many, uh, people actually, uh, watch the show at this point, but, you know, I think it's something could be, you know, very easily something like, you know, 500 million people, uh, could have seen, had some exposure to that clip that night when it was, um, you know, the, the, the kids eating dinner, uh, with, with, with the, family. And when I think about, you know, great scientific achievements uh, in the US, you know, often it seems completely random about who would actually talk about something like that. It would be, you know, if it happened to be the case that, you know, some uh, celebrity decided to retweet something cool from a a scientist uh, that the person follows, you know, it's um, not very clear how these uh, interesting pieces of science news can actually get distributed, so long as you're not uh, Elon Musk. And so when I think that about you know the uh, desire for the uh, Chinese government to create um, you know uh, ideas about. Getting excited for science. Well, they still have a lot of these means to do so. And if among, you know, let's say a, a, a few hundred million um, folks who saw that particular clip, you were able to inspire uh, a thousand kids into getting more excited about this uh, quantum technology or about the space technology. Well, you know, these could uh, promote quite a lot more interest in figuring out, uh, you know, the fundamental facts of science or trying to explore a, a little bit more of the universe. And again, this is, um, space is, I think, one of those things that are just incredibly um, exciting for the human imagination. There's never been anything like space uh, really to capture broad swaths of the imagination uh, among um, ordinary people. We saw that basically through the moon landings. And this is, again, um, something where I'm keen to connect uh, party speak with uh, basically inspiration. So when President Kennedy uh, stated in 1961 that that the United States will send a man to the moon uh, and bring him back safely before the decade was out, You know, these clear slogans of these very bright uh, technical goals that are uh, very cleanly spelled out, you know, that was the essence, in my view, of political leadership that really succeeded in uh, driving forward a lot of technology. And the party speak that uh, takes place in, you know, the uh, general secretary's uh, essays or speeches aren't quite so good on the level of uh, JFK's goals. But you know, I think there <laughs> is an understatement. <laughs> yeah, that is indeed an understatement. But you know, I think there is—you know—fundamentally, they are trying to do the same thing. In which Xi Jinping, in particular, is trying to inspire people. It's trying to remind people of the party's uh, glorious history in, in his mind, uh, and then also think very clearly about—you know—how do we push forward to do big things? Uh, and that's what his uh, exhortations are are really much about. Hmm.
1: Dan, let's let's talk about China's push for technological self reliance. Uh, the latest, the uh, fourteenth five year plan, calls for self reliance in science and technology, uh, calling it actually a, a strategic pillar of national development. Uh, this is all consistent with the idea of you know, secure supply chains, that is one of the plan's major themes. And, um, you know, it's, it's something anyone could have anticipated, given the threats to supply chains that have been just such a feature of the last few years uh, of the Trump presidency. Uh, so let's get into China's self-reliance efforts and, and focus on what I, I think I suppose is, is the most obvious area, uh, one where China really does have some, some pronounced vulnerabilities, uh, at least in the short term. And that, of course, is semiconductors. Um, it's been now over, what, a year and a half since Huawei was placed on the entity list. Uh, and that, of course, was followed by other measures that have been intended to restrict access you know, to the cutting edge chips and to the technologies that, that you know make their production possible. Uh, the range of companies and sectors impacted by export restrictions has also ballooned just in the last you know, year or so. Uh, broadly speaking, what have U.S. restrictions on exports of advanced semiconductors actually done to the Chinese tech sector? What's really the impact?
0: My line on this, Kaiser, is that the U.S. mostly reacted to the technological rise of uh, the USSR and then Japan by investing a great deal more in itself. And it's mostly reacted to the technological rise of China so far um, by trying to kneecap leading Chinese companies like uh, Huawei uh, or SMIC and uh, even. through executive orders uh by dance and uh tencent uh, over the summer mm-hmm. now um what that has done uh was uh, is that it means that instead of realizing its own sputnik moment the u.s has triggered one in china and basically we are seeing this uh, whole of society effort now in china to figure out uh you know a lot more uh of its um, self-sufficiency goals, as well as technology greatness goals. Now, as you mentioned, you know, the 14th five-year plan will have a big emphasis on supporting science and technology. Um, You know, the thing that I was most struck by um, last year were two events. Um, President Xi, I think, has never been that keenly interested in technology and science uh, in the early years of his uh, presidency. But he has become much more interested in science and technology through his party speeches in which he's talking about, you know, secure and controllable, we need to innovate our way out of choke point technologies. And that's because I think, uh, due to the uh, US actions to try to take down leading firms like Huawei,
1: which I think is uh, the most important technology company in China. But they've produced, you know, genuine threats, right? I mean, these are these are genuine threats to the the, the future viability of some of these companies, especially Huawei. I mean, it. it uh, I, I mean, we're not talking just about quality concerns, but also quantity concerns. You know, in in their anxieties over over semiconductors. I mean, there are supply bottlenecks even in some of the less advanced chips, aren't there? Uh, yes, and let me illustrate that with an example. So if you take a look
0: at uh, your smartphone, Kaiser, you know, you'll, there are something like 1500 discrete hardware components uh, in your phone. If you take away any particular component, um, let's say if you take away the screen or you take away the battery or you take away the processor, well, then you don't have a phone anymore. Um, and it is just a, a, a dead piece of weight. And so um, what the uh, Chinese government, I think, has now appreciated is that, um, well, look, we uh, and rely actually very substantially on the US for a lot of technologies that we can not necessarily uh, acquire at the moment. It's not just, you know, a, a two or three parts uh, of a smartphone that we cannot acquire. It is uh, actually, you know, a few hundred parts uh, that are US origin technologies that we can no longer hmm. uh, acquire. And so, um, you know, that is uh, a, a very great attack, I think, on uh, Huawei's supply chain and the future of the the viability of the uh, company's operations, uh, I've publicly stated, is now in doubt given um, how severe U.S. restrictions are. And so one of the things I've been struck by is that a lot of the U.S. uh, efforts to confront Huawei or uh, other Chinese tech companies has been in part on the principle of reciprocity. Now, I know that there are a a lot of um, national security concerns, which i agree with on Huawei. Uh, There are a lot of economic security concerns, um, but one of these ideas is reciprocity because the Chinese government uh, more or less kicked out uh, Google, uh, Facebook, and Twitter uh, around a decade ago. The US government has decided, well, then uh, maybe uh, Huawei uh, should not have US components. And the US actions to me are a much greater escalation than what the Chinese government uh, has said. The Chinese government is uh, saying only that Google, uh, Twitter and um, Facebook and uh, many other companies uh, cannot have access to this market. The U.S. government is saying, well, these critical technologies that uh, you were buying American from, can, we will no longer uh, give you. And that puts the viability of the entire company under a cloud. And the right. Chinese government has um, stated that it's not just the 14th five year plan. Um, what I thought was the most astonishing statement was at the end of uh, 2020 at the Central Economic Work Conference, um, basically, you know, this um, big body uh, declared, uh, chaired by President Xi, that the top prior- economic priority in 2021 is science and technology. Now, as far as I can tell, science and technology has never been independently broken out uh, as a discrete item, and to see it as the very top item for the Chinese government's uh, economic work in 2021, I think, is just, again, an astonishing statement.
1: Wow, wow. Well, it was one of the four modernizations, but yeah, I mean, having it the top priority item in 2021 for sure. So there's a fire that's been lit and obviously there has to be a strong demand driver for this. You make the argument in an op-ed that you wrote for Bloomberg that that demand driver could very well be China's domestic tech giants, that it would be the private sector companies that would be... Standing in for you know what were the demand drivers in the United States, it was it was the Pentagon, right? I mean, it was the defense sector and and NASA. Uh, those were the things that really drove the creation of of ultimately of Silicon Valley. Uh, there's something kind of deeply ironic that you know it was sort of state in the United States where it will be the private sector in in China. Can you explain your idea that uh, you know the willingness of the Huawei's and the Tencent's and the Alibaba's to as you put it, to pursue performance almost without any regard to price uh, means just tremendous incentive for Chinese vendors.
0: Uh, Yes, that's
1: right. So I spent quite a lot of time
0: thinking about the history of Chinese industrial policy, and I think by most measures, Chinese industrial policy has been a failure. At best, you can call it a mixed success. You can find successes in something like solar panels or high-speed rail, but for much bigger ticket items that the Chinese state has spent more time trying to cultivate, like semiconductors or aviation, those Uh, projects, I think, have been mostly failures in which China has persistently tried to catch up to global leaders uh, and has persistently failed to catch up to global leaders. And, you know, I think the most fundamental problem of Chinese industrial policy uh, has been that uh, this has mostly been a state-led affair in which the Chinese government was trying to convince the state sector, which I include um, both as government ministries as well as uh, state-owned enterprises to buy obviously inferior Chinese technologies, and then hope that this procurement process drives a lot of innovation, let's say between the provinces, um, the the, the SOE's competing between provinces, there's still a very big market, and then hope that this process creates uh, technology leaders. Now, sometimes that works, uh, again, as in the case of solar panels or high-speed rail, uh, but broadly speaking, I would not say that this has been a very effective strategy. But this time is different uh, because of uh, U.S. actions. As you mentioned, Kaiser, the uh, U.S. government has imposed sanctions on uh, Huawei, which gravely threatens its viability, its designated Mm -hmm. SMIC, China's leading semiconductor maker, to the entity list, which restricts its ability to access U.S. technology, Um, and it's also banned uh, WeChat uh, in the U.S., as well as uh, TikTok in the U.S., which have been currently held up by uh, U.S. federal court. Now, if you ask me to name who are China's technology leaders uh, right now, well, I would certainly say that Huawei, SMIC, Tencent, uh, ByteDance, and Alibaba should all be in there. And the only uh company that has really escaped the wrath of the US government has been Alibaba. But ironically, right now, we're seeing that it's the Chinese government that's really stepped <laughs> up to the plate to, you know, deliver a beating against uh, Alibaba. Um, but, you know, a lot of these companies have faced uh, threats uh, against their operations from the US uh, government. And these are China's technology leaders. And so yeah. the um I what I think uh, is happening is that um the US government has uh placed um Huawei uh in 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 the status of uh basically uh NASA in the 1960s NASA and the US Air Force more or less created the uh semiconductor uh industry de novo um by being a procurer of uh leading chips that you know as you say uh, don't pay attention to price that are uh only uh, important for performance Huawei is an important uh, technology company that is highly capable, that is still pretty cash rich that would just want to buy a lot of Chinese components. Um, and it doesn't really matter uh, what price uh, that they're set. And I think this has the potential to boost a lot of the Chinese technology ecosystem, because a major company like Huawei, which, you know, a smaller company, uh, it would never give the time of day to a smaller Chinese vendor, they're now courting, actively courting and trying to help out um, their vendors to be able to be credible suppliers. Now, I don't think that this necessarily guarantees by means the success of China's uh, industrial policy efforts this time. But by aligning the interests of leading firms uh, with the state's interests of promoting technological greatness as well as self-sufficiency, I think that this has a much greater chance of succeeding than in the past uh, with all of those efforts that were almost entirely state-led. This time is different because of U.S. actions.
1: And the incentive becomes just really irresistible for these vendors. It really aligns you know, I mean, it, it pro- provides the proper incentive to these vendors. Look, the, the export restrictions, though, um, they haven't just hurt uh, the SMICs and the, the other Chinese companies, the Huawei's uh, and so forth. They've also hurt companies like TSMC, Taiwan-based, a good guy in the sort of the American way of thinking. There's got to have been a, a lot of collateral damage. I mean, we've talked a lot about the collateral damage. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have talked about it to American chip manufacturers. But what about to TSMC when you cut them off from one of their biggest customers like Huawei? TSMC less so, in fact. So, you know, we had a
0: big um, discussion in the analyst community uh, in the uh, first half of the year when we saw these restrictions on Huawei is um, TSMC going to be pretty substantially hurt? Um, well, we know that Huawei was responsible for around 15% of its revenues. Um, and there were some other folks who said that TSMC is going to be fine. Uh, in fact, what we've seen is that TSMC has been basically fine because uh, its oh, technology good. is just so good. And there are so many um, you know uh, buyers who are so keen to work with TSMC that it's been able to find uh, customers uh, very easily. But I do agree with you that US restrictions have not just impacted Um, Chinese companies, uh, it's also been uh, able to impact uh, companies uh, in uh, allied countries. That's in part because uh, U.S. Uh, export control laws are extraterritorial. So long as you're producing, let's say, in a place like the Netherlands or Japan, and you need to import a substantial amount of U.S. origin-controlled technologies, the U.S. Department of Commerce asserts jurisdiction over that product, declares that U.S. technology, and then says, well, you need to seek a license if you want to sell that good to Huawei. So we do know that there are some European companies, um, and as well as some Japanese, uh, Korean, uh, Taiwanese companies that have had to comply with U.S. uh, export controls, and that has delivered uh, some third-party impact. And very interestingly, even if the U.S. government doesn't uh, insert legal jurisdiction over a product, the uh, U.S. government might pressure, for example, ASML, a major semiconductor equipment vendor in the Netherlands, not to sell to China. And that has been, you know, a matter of diplomacy. So we're seeing, you know, this is just a single machine, a single machine that costs around $150 million. It's the size of a bus that required about 30 years of experience to work with pure chemistry and light to create. We're, but we're talking about seven, seven nanometer lithography equipment. That's right. This is extreme ultraviolet um, uh, lithography equipment that gets you down uh, under five nanometers of um, process oh, no, nodes. Oh, now it's down under five. I it's mean, now it's, uh, yeah. even smaller than that, uh, Kaiser. Wow. And you can see, you know, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo asserting enormous pressure on the Dutch government not to sell a particular machine. So, you know, they're they're, right. they're
1: focused on something that niche. So, I mean, we just now you were seeing the praises of TSMC and, and their technological advancement. Uh, SMIC SMIC is what you, you say at least five years behind them. Um, you know, TSMC is deploying five nanometer scale lithography. Uh, SMIC is still at fourteen nanometers. But um, does phone really require okay so look you're you you will not have quite the battery life uh maybe you'd have to design around a slightly larger processor but it's not like you can't make a phone uh with sort of last year's generation of of lithography equipment right
0: That's definitely right.
1: And I think this is one of the
0: um, arguments that are a a bit more constructive on China's industry. Now, I said that China's industry, uh, semiconductor industry uh, has broadly been a failure. Um, But, you know, I do concede that, you know, my line on China's semiconductor industry is that it's built the basics of computing in every segment, even though it is leading in none of them. And so uh, SMIC's current capabilities of 14 nanometers are roughly where, um, you know, the iPhone uh, five years ago uh, was. Right. Uh, that has that capability. And that is not a catastrophic position for China. One of the bull cases for China's um, technology growth in semiconductors over the longer run is that, you know, if you buy all this 5G hype, which I uh, do not really, um, that there will be uh, chips in you know traffic lights, there will be chips in my pen. There will be uh, chips in the uh, coffee that I'm drinking. You know, a lot of these things don't need to be leading edge processors. We don't need an iPhone level chip in the traffic light. Uh, you know that uh, that 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 are on the, our streets. And China's capabilities are basically perfectly fine to manufacture most of the um, technologies that we will uh, be producing over the next 10 years. But I think and and is- even some
1: of the, the, the really important technologies of the fourth industrial revolution, like AI, I mean, deep learning is powered on GPUs. Um, these are what is used in these neural networks. And you can do those just fine with existing silicon that China can already produce, Right. Uh, well, I would push back on that
0: view, Kaiser. So okay. I think the um, if you take a look at a lot of the um, technologies that underpin um, China's successes so far, they are very much dependent on um, U.S. technologies at the moment. So sticking with semiconductors for a minute, um, you know, to be able to produce semiconductors, um, SMIC, China's leading semiconductor maker, needs to import substantial equipment from the U.S. Um, these are from names like Lam Research or Applied material. uh, to be able to manufacture semiconductors in the first place. It also needs um, a a semiconductor designer like um, Huawei also needs to buy a uh, software, uh, specialized software in order to design a chip. And that is overwhelmingly American technology. And so mm-hmm. are the mm-hmm. equipment. So, you know, even when it had access to the leading equipment on the market, SMIC has been persistently around five years behind uh, TSMC. And so the um, if it is uh, Without this, um, equipment, if the U.S. declines to sell, um, much more of this, as the U.S. government has already expressed, uh, then it becomes, um, quite a lot more difficult for SMIC to rely on domestic vendors, um, to be able to catch up to the rest of the world. And I think we still see this in a lot of, um, you know, different technologies in which China is leading. You know, this is why I think, uh, you know, this idea of decoupling or self-sufficiency can only be a fantasy, at least in the next decade. Technology is a global affair. You need um, different components from different vendors uh, around the world. No country has monopolized um, anything uh, in the longer run. And, you know, so I think there is still much of the story for interdependence, even though the U.S. government has placed Chinese firms uh, in a very difficult position. I just don't see them reinventing every segment of every component uh, that they really need.
1: One theme, Dan, that comes up in some of your writing is this uh, this, uh, this idea that we, we tend to believe technologies to kind of begin and end with the companies that develop and deploy them. And that's just not the case. I mean, technology doesn't disappear when a company is shuttered. I mean, technology isn't just tools and patents, uh, because even if there's those are gone. You still have process knowledge and the technical experience that survives in the minds and in the hands of of individuals. Can you talk about what constitutes process knowledge and and how this ties in with China's fate as a technology power? You know, when we talk about technology, I think we should really break it down
0: into three different components of what technology really is. So Mm -hmm. the first is um, something that is the most easily observable, like the tools and the equipment that we can uh, actually tangibly use. So in a kitchen analogy, that is the uh, pots, pans, and the stove. The second component of technology is um, direct instruction. So something like um, intellectual property, or again, in a kitchen analogy, technology, Something like the recipe to create uh, some of this technology, and then I think the third part is in fact the most important. What I call process knowledge, which you can also think of as uh, tacit knowledge—you um, know, just um, tricks of the trade or just uh, you know industrial experience—which is not very easy to write down uh, as um, uh, as a recipe and doesn't exist in a tool making form yet. And so, again, in a kitchen um, setting, you know, if you if we wanted to prepare a you know even a pretty simple meal even if you give someone the most um, well-equipped kitchen uh, in the world even if you um, make uh, exquisite recipes that are highly detailed To someone who has never cooked uh, in uh, his or her life in the past, well, I don't think that they can prepare even something very uh, simple and straightforward. And this process knowledge, I think, is the most important component of technology. This is the knowledge that exists in people's heads. And this is really the part that will, um, you know, advance, um, uh, you know, our technologically accelerating civilization. If you give a bunch of highly detailed blueprints, as well as pretty good materials to, you know, a a pharaoh in Egypt or an emperor in China 2000 years ago, I do not expect that they can put together a well-developed car or semiconductor, even if they had enormous resources. And so to put this in the Chinese context, um, you know, one of the knocks against uh, China's technology, folks are still bringing up the idea that Now, the original iPhone released in 2008 had only around 2% uh, value add generated uh, by uh, Chinese, uh, but generated in China. And that was pretty much uh, straightforwardly only the value of the assembly of a few workers, uh, mostly in Shenzhen, putting together uh, the phone. Um, But what that did create is a large pool of labor. Even if you don't expect that they uh, learned a great deal on the job, uh, what I think did happen was a few thousand line engineers every year that are managing this electronics process um, have become the world's greatest experts on how hardware uh, works. When you combine that with the billions of dollars invested uh, into the smartphone supply chain, I think it's no wonder that Shenzhen has become the hardware innovation capital of the world in which you have mostly a lot of reassembly of different smartphone components uh, into things like consumer drones, into things like scooters, into things like uh, VR headsets in which the bulk of the innovation is taking place uh, in Shenzhen. Uh, and so I think that is um, broadly the story that can be generalized to a lot of different segments of China's technology progress. Instead of coming up with, you know, highly specific stories about, you know, oh, what is the s- state of China's uh, memory chip sector or uh, electric vehicle sector, I want to create a more generalized theory. That when you have a lot of the workforce in China learning um, how to do technology, learning by doing, creating a great deal of the process knowledge in order to push forward uh, technology, you know, I sort of want to say that there, it's um, it's more likely that they'll figure out a lot of different technology capabilities. For example, hardware products, um, then they'll, they'll they'll figure out basically uh, so many of these things because they learn how to do something by doing it.
1: There, it reminds me of um this concept that's in James Scott's seeing like a state it's he talks about two types of technology technis and metis two types of know how and that sort of the the knowledge of doing uh that local knowledge that sort of on the ground knowledge that's that's really important. So, Dan, Dan, I think it's testimony to that breadth and that humanism that I alluded to earlier uh, that you were able to reach for like a, an amazing uh, example of how process knowledge gets preserved and, and passed on—the Ise Grand Shrine in southern Honshu, I believe, in, in Japan. To talk about that—that's just I, I it was <laughs> what a cool little thing to insert into a piece. Well, the Ise Grand Shrine is
0: um, a a sacred shrine in Japan uh, in which uh, they are, you know, they they treat this shrine uh, really seriously. Um, And so, you know, this is a a big wooden structure. uh, And uh, as we know, uh, wood degrades uh, very easily. And the shrine has been in place for a a few hundred years now uh, in which the special thing is that every uh, few generations, um, the workers completely take apart the Ise Grand Shrine. And then put it back uh, together again. And this is about preserving the knowledge to work with uh, wood, which is, uh, we, which is not something that we think of as very difficult technology. But the people know that if something ever happens to this shrine, um, then they need to be able to put it back together. And they never want to lose that production experience of working with this, um, uh, the, the sacred shrine to lose that knowledge. And so, you know, I think this is just a a very nice illustration that um some folks appreciate that you can't simply write everything down. Um you can't simply, you know, photograph everything and then um you know expect that future generations will learn how to do this um uh, d- important process. You
1: actually Ever heard of YouTube though? <laughs>
0: yeah, well, uh, I I guess I'm a bit of a skeptic there, uh, Kaiser. I think what we need to do is uh, roll up our sleeves, actually get our hands dirty and then figure these things out uh and um you know have that experience. Uh it's sure, you don't sure, want to sure. risk that uh uh, people just simply forget or, you know, maybe the servers
1: go down, Kaiser. <laughs> That's true. It, it's entirely possible that could happen. And so related to this is another theme that threads through a lot of your writing. And that is, and we, we, we flicked at this earlier when we were talking about Shenzhen and just, uh, but, but the danger you write about of separating design and manufacturing as the U.S. has. And conversely, the advantages of, of having those things together in one geography as in silicon valley in its heyday is in in Xinzhou in in you know uh, the west of of taipei in, in in taiwan and in of course Shenzhen, which we were just talking about i mean it's also something i've talked about with various guests on this program and in talks i've given but what in a nutshell did the us lose when it began offshoring more and more of its manufacturing in the 80s and the 90s in technology I think the U.S. and also um,
0: to even a greater extent, the United Kingdom uh, embraced the conceit that we should pursue only higher value um, uh economic work and higher value is something that a few uh, economists uh, managed to define that this is um, about margin, uh, a profit margin and uh, basically nothing else. And so that was the conceit that allowed a lot of industry to offshore a great deal of production, especially to China, that, um, you know, in the idea that they would upskill the workforce. I'm now highly allergic to all of these terms from economists, you know, um, upskill, you know, creating a higher value uh, added you know these things i think lack a a great deal of uh, what is actually uh, important in a national uh, economy i think this uh, big focus on directing the um, us as well as the uk to higher value projects uh, like for example finance uh, like the consumer internet like property, I think has been a trap in which this has uh, degraded a lot of the industrial base in the U.S. Um, It has created cascading skill loss in which the U.S. has, uh, I think, suffered pretty catastrophically in the first half of 2020 when it was not able to make um, masks and cotton swabs by any measure a simple technology that were very important in uh, preventing the outbreak of the virus um, as well as in doing tests. And so, you know, this worship of these high prestige sectors like Finance, uh, as well as uh, the 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 consumer internet, what we think of as tech, mostly in Silicon Valley today, I think has been a trap. And this is also one of the things that um, I think has been very interesting that President Xi declared this year. In April, he gave a speech saying that you know digitization is great and very nice and very important and all, um, but we must never let go of our various segments of manufacturing. We must never deindustrialize. And I think he's bring really brought that up to. Um, um, uh, back that up with uh, new regulations that are currently beating up consumer internet giants like Alibaba and Tencent through securities regulation as well as antitrust regulation. And you know, having attended school in the um, U.S. as well as Canada, and one of these things that um, sort of upset me today is to see um, folks who are you know um, went to be a great chemical engineer and are working in uh, purely consumer internet companies. Uh, you know, I won't name any names, but you know, you can imagine what those are. Or, you know, oh, yeah. even more egregiously are folks who, uh, go get, uh, PhDs in applied mathematics in, uh, something like Caltech and then go work for a big bank like Citibank a or hedge uh, yeah, bank a hedge fund. Yeah. Or a hedge fund. And, you know, right. to me, that is a, uh, that is a, a, a tragedy of lost skills. And instead of promoting, um, you know, technology, they're
1: uh, promoting financialization instead. Couldn't agree more. You know, you, you note in one of your essays that, that Germany and the United States, uh, are each now very good at different things. Germany is still good at industry, uh, but, you know, there aren't any major German internet companies now, are there? Uh, and the U.S. is, it, it excels at information technology, but, you know, as the case of Huawei drives home, there are no ma- major, for example, telecommunications equipment manufacturing companies in the United States, right? Um, each is poor in what the other excels at, but, What about China? I mean, you just mentioned, yeah, sure, Alibaba and Tencent are now maybe under a little bit of scrutiny from uh, kind of invigorated antitrust uh, regulators in in China. But China is one of the only countries I can think of that that has produced both major information technology companies and manufacturing. I agree. Is that… Yeah. So
0: the um, Chinese companies, I think, are the only uh, companies that can look upon their um, Silicon Valley counterparts as peers in uh, um, the space of a, a lot of this uh, consumer internet uh, technology. Um, as in some ways, the Chinese companies are much more innovative in terms of um, certain financial technologies uh, or e-commerce in China. And that is um, uh, obvious to all. At the same time, China has become a growing industrial power, figuring out not just things like solar panels and high-speed rail um, but also uh, leading in certain segments of uh, heavy industry and really you know outside of these choke point technologies that the China Chinese leadership has identified like semiconductors or wide-body aircraft or right now there's a, a bit more of emphasis on life sciences uh, as well, especially seeds um, you know China has figured out a great deal of industry as well as the internet and I think this is where the Chinese leadership is, Pushing, it's um the the, the government is pushing a much more emphasis on figuring out um, the world of hardware. At the same time, as sort of reining in these consumer internet companies, but you know for the most part, I would I think it's still letting them do their thing. So they so long as they're not creating financial instability or are treating consumers or vendors uh, too badly. So it is sort of letting them still you know be innovators, uh, you know experiment and then do what they want. At the same time as promoting the uh, hardware, the the industrial
1: technologies
0: in a much greater way.
1: Um, We've talked a little bit about industrial policy. I want to shift gears and and focus back on that. Uh, You've written about how China's planners have learned from mistakes in previous industrial policy statements. Uh, Let's take Made in China 2025 as maybe the most notorious example. What has changed in subsequent policies after Made in China 2025?
0: Well, uh, first, uh, I would say that um, China has a very good tradition of learning from its um, past industrial policies. So ever since the first five-year plan that the Chinese government unveiled in 1959, you can see that they keep getting better and more sophisticated at controlling the bad stuff and then promoting the good stuff uh, in in, 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 uh, all of their industrial planning. And that's not just through the five-year plans, but also through these discrete technology projects like the 863 project or the medium and long-term scientific plan. And so China certainly learns and um it certainly uh has learned um some things uh, in the wake of uh, made in china 2025 uh and um one of these uh is that you know it can no longer uh talk about um you know big technology ambitions without pissing off the Americans. And so it's become (laughs) quite a bit less transparent uh, about um, everything that it does. Um, But Kaiser, I would submit that um, one of the things that are very interesting now, um, as I spelled out earlier, is that there's much less, um, you know, I think we can be a bit less interested in what the state is thinking about. And uh, we should think much more about uh, what the private companies are doing. Um, I think that the industrial plans uh, in the future are going to matter less on the margin because we have major technology leaders like Huawei, are trying really hard to figure out their own survival and, uh, you know, boost technology ecosystems. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the state has become much less important of a driver on doing big things because the private company has stepped up. And so I think, you know, may, maybe we can, um, you know, s- s- spare ourselves a-, a little bit of, you know, um, uh, so much of this um, intense focus on the policies themselves. And at the same time, it's become much more important to figure out what companies are actually doing on the ground to promote their own capability abilities, this is uh, policy has become uh, much less important on the
1: margin. Let's let's talk about U.S. attitudes toward industrial policy, because it's always just puzzled me why the United States at least ostensibly seems so allergic to it. Uh, My sense is that there have always been kind of two sources of contempt for industrial policy. There's contempt on the grounds that it's unfair and anti-competitive, that it creates market distortions and so forth. That's on the one hand, and on the other, there's this contempt for, uh, for it that is is it's rooted in maybe this dogmatic belief that it just doesn't work, that planners can't pick industries or set targets or or back national champions because they just you know they never are going to know better than the market. Which which one is at work when Americans think about uh, China? Um, because I think it actually matters, because, you know, it's going to affect how we respond to to Chinese industrial policy. So why ultimately do you think we oppose Chinese industrial policy? And why are we so reluctant to meet it with with industrial policy of our own?
0: It's certainly a contradiction. And I think the US government has always uh, pretended that it doesn't do a great deal of industrial policy. And certainly, you know, relative to Uh, East Asia in the latter half of the uh, 20th century and in the present, uh, the U.S. doesn't do a huge amount of industrial policy. But still, you know, there has been a lot of efforts in um, uh, the U.S. to promote particular industries. For example, in the early days of the integrated circuit, in which uh, the U.S. Air Force and NASA were the prime drivers of this uh, very important technology. Alexander Hamilton stated in the past that, you know, we must protect our manufacturers, and he imposed high tariffs on uh, UK goods in order to do so. So I think the the US has always been, you know, has always sort of muddied the waters itself a little bit. Um, As far as I can tell, uh, Boeing is the closest thing the U.S. has to a state-owned enterprise when it has uh, contractors or subcontractors in every congressional district in the U.S. Um, at this point, uh, Intel has become much more friendly towards uh, the U.S. government in part because of its own struggles. And so I wonder if we will see basically a more transparent and more honest discussion
1: of where industrial policy makes sense in the U.S. again. So, do you think that we think that it doesn't work, or do we just not like it on sort of philosophical grounds? Yes, I think it's all of it, Kaiser. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So, to wrap up this conversation about U.S.-China competition in technology, let me read back to you a quote uh, that you you wrote. You wrote this, by the way, before the Biden inauguration, but this is this is this is interesting. You write, "At a time when it's more important than ever to advance its semiconductor companies." The government, you mean the U.S. government here, is crippling their sales to their largest or fastest-growing market. When research capabilities at U.S. universities need to grow, the government is denying them students. And when the U.S. should be attracting more talent to its shores, the government has made it more difficult for people to immigrate. Thus, the U.S. looks committed to a strategy to destroy the scientific and industrial establishment in order to save it. Do you see us pulling out of this suicidal strategy with this change of administration?
0: Certainly on the immigration front, I think that um, President Biden has indicated that he will be quite a lot more welcoming to President Trump, uh, for example, by signing executive orders to that effect on the very first day. Yeah. H-1Bs. Yeah. Yes. And that is uh, one aspect, I think, that will be uh, pretty important. The other things to watch, I think, are a little bit less certain. So the Department of Justice uh, announced uh, something called the China Initiative in 2018, which is a political <laughs> instruction on the rest of the prosecutorial bureaucracy to scrutinize Chinese actions much more closely and then bring cases for prosecution. A lot of this concerns, as you might expect, um, IP, uh, you know, trade secret misappropriation, but it also gets it into um, instructing the FBI to educate US universities about Chinese influence operations. And in the wake of that, we've seen quite a lot more criminal charges brought against professors at leading universities um for alleged um uh, misdemeanors although mostly in the case of um you know not disclosing certain funding which i think is not exactly the same thing as um illicit technology transfer and so we'll have to see um how uh president biden's department of justice handles uh, these cases the other yeah, yeah, big yeah. debate that i'm uh, would encourage U.S. policymakers to think much more about is um, what they are doing to the status of American brands writ large. So the U.S. government has designated uh, continuous tranches of Chinese companies to poorly understood blacklists uh, in which suddenly they've had their rug pulled out from under them um, to not be able to depend on American supply. And I think this has been a very curious um, big antitrust effort against the American brand at large, which is making American suppliers uh, unreliable out of these um, political actions. It's not just the major companies like Huawei and SMIC that have been affected. Um, there's uh, Every time the U.S. Department of Commerce does something really mean against uh, Huawei, there will be a lot of commentary in the Chinese media, usually exaggerating um, these rules and perpetuating some misinformation in which Chinese brands are no longer reliable. But that is the fact of the matter as it is. What we see now is that Chinese uh, poultry farmers, for example, are nervous about buying chicken eggs, high quality chicken eggs uh, from the U.S. in order to breed better chicks. I've heard that, you know, there are uh, high quality cardboard manufacturers who are saying that You know, they are uh, seeing that Chinese customers are trying to pivot away from them. One manufacturer told me, a U.S. manufacturer told me that his Chinese customers are auditing his uh, products for American content because they don't want to end up like the next Huawei. And so I would uh, encourage, uh, basically, the U.S. policymaking establishment to think a little bit more about, um, you know, what the U.S., what the Trump administration has done to uh, American brands, why it should not encourage them to offshore to reduce their American content. To think more about instances of Japanese companies uh, marketing themselves as more reliable than Chinese uh, than US companies and then you know really try to recover you know uh, some of that trust where that, that can be
1: done. Dan Wong, thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, it has just been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, let's move on to recommendations now. But first, let me quickly remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you want to support the work that we're doing with Seneca and the other podcasts in the Seneca network, the best thing you can do is to subscribe to SupChina Access. You'll get our daily email newsletter plus all sorts of other prerequisites. So please, show your support. Help us out. It's really important. And Check out our new podcasts. We've got uh, a couple of new ones in the pipeline right now. Let me talk about one of them today, which is China Stories. We've teamed up with Sixth Tone, Caixin Global, The Wire China, and The World of Chinese to bring uh, really nicely narrated audio uh, magazine stories. These were taking some of the longer features and uh, putting them all into a podcast feed one story at a time. Uh, so sign up for China Stories, and you can... You know, listen to uh, skilled readers, except, you know, maybe not me. I'm not so skilled, but I'm doing some of them. Uh, doing really great stories from some of the best English language writing on China coming out of China. Great. Uh, on to recommendations. Dan, you know, I'm, I'm going I'm to force you into a set of recommendations because one of the great things about your letter is that you have a long books section and a long food section. So I'm going to make you give a book and food recommendation, related recommendation, based on the content of your letter. Sure.
0: Well, um, this year, Kaiser, I spent um, uh, quite a few months uh, reading the uh, entirety of Proust. Um, this is the second time I've oh, done wow. that. Uh, all three books? All seven books, Kaiser, not just three. Oh, my, oh, three. my gosh. Yes. Uh, yes, indeed.
1: Okay, so now I have them in co- collections where... There are more than one, just in 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 one Swan's Way and a few others, like uh, a, all in a
0: big volume. I and I I, um, an I, volume. I I I do recommend it. This is um something like you know you can get uh, intense pleasure from reading these books as you would from you know uh, reading a Dream of the Red Chamber, uh, which is you know I think a um, somewhat comparable uh, to, to 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 Proust. Now the food recommendation <laughs> is um you know I'm uh I was I was born in Yunnan. Uh, I, I, of course I have to represent my uh, provincial cuisine here. These, uh, the mushrooms of Yunnan, the uh, ham of Yunnan. Um, it's one of the few places that eat cheese. Uh, they would, uh, toss basically a big handful of fresh mint, uh, into your, uh, noodle soup, which are typically made of rice noodles. You know, I find that, uh, very interesting indeed. I know that Yunnan food is very trendy right now. Um, but, you know, I was, um, I was there before everyone else. So, uh, you know, I, I do encourage it. <laughs>
1: Dan, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's this fantastic series uh, that's called Flavorful Origins. Uh, it's actually running on on Netflix. I think it's called Fengwei Yuanzhan Di in Chinese, but it's it's a really really great Netflix series, and it it's from Tencent. It's from Tencent Video originally, but they're only you know ten twelve minute long episodes each, and they've done three seasons. The first season focuses uh, entirely on on Gansu. So it's a lot Wonderful. of mutton related stuff. The second season is all about Yunnan. Oh, excellent. And it, it's yeah, it's fantastic. I mean all those dishes that you've talked about like the the sheep's milk cheese and all the mushrooms and you know mi Xian and all that stuff. It's all in there. Um so check that out. It's 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 just a fantastic series. It's it's guaranteed to get your salivary glands going. Uh it's just the cinematography is, is great. The production value is just out, out of this world. I mean, think it's, it's much better, I think, than um, you know China on the tip of, of your tongue or whatever it was, that really popular one that was from Sohu from a few years ago. Uh, check it out. That's great. That's not my official recommendation, though. That was just sort of a, a tag along onto yours. No, I endorsed
0: that recommendation, Kaiser. That's my, now my recommendation,
1: too. Okay, great, great. Uh, I want to recommend Timothy Brooks' excellent book, Great State, China and the World, which is a, a very original work of history that examines, I think, from very creative angles, China's relations with the world. And it, it spans, you know, the period from the Yuan all the way through the Ming and the Qing and the Republic and wartime China and uh, all the way to the PRC. Um Timothy Brook is just a spectacularly gifted writer, as well as a great historian, uh, and so the book is is really as engaging as it is edifying. It's it's really just a, a pleasure to read. By the way, it's also available as an audio book on Audible, um, which is how I actually read this. So if you're an Audible subscriber and you have a credit to use, Brook reads it himself, and and it's he's just a really really good narrator. Um, I didn't even realize that it was Brooke himself reading it until I heard him pronouncing all these Chinese words so correctly that I I think, what? And I I, I checked, and sure enough, it was read by the author. You know, Um, his
0: book on the Ming uh, dynasty is also a really, really good commercial book Oh, it's great. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I love everything he wrote. I mean, I just actually got something in the mail from the Academia Sinica uh, from the Modern History Bureau in in Taiwan. Um, It was a lecture that he gave there, published really gorgeously and bilingually, actually, uh, as a book uh, by the Academia Sinica uh, that includes some really nice prints of, of maps because, you know, it's it's about map making in China uh, that I intend to have framed. Uh, my family actually endows a, a lecture called the Guotingyi Memorial Lecture Series after my, my paternal grandfather. Uh, so I guess they sent, sent this along to me by way of thanks. Uh, but I am super eager to talk into it because um, I, I just finished uh, The Great State, So, I'm man, I'm really glad they had Timothy Brook because uh, he's just such a great scholar. And I I hope to have him on the show one of these days. Uh, Dan, man, what a pleasure. What a a fun conversation with you.
0: I I hope we do this again uh, soon, Kaiser.
1: We absolutely will. Absolutely. There's just so, there's, you know, great depths to plumb with you. So we absolutely will have you back. Appreciate it. So the Seneca podcast is powered by China and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldkorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at sinica at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Hey.